preaching through 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning as we continue to preach sequentially through the books of 1 and 2 Peter. And uh, for those of you who have missed messages, we've, we started with just looking at the life of Peter um, through the Bible, through uh, the Gospels, and, and, uh, and, and through the book of Acts. And we see uh, Peter's life itself. And then, then we began looking at those scriptures, the First uh, Peter and Second Peter, of what he has to say to us. So we kind of build a background, and then we've been going through line by line, verse by verse, kind of preaching uh, through that. And when you do that, you can, there's some, there's some definite advantages uh, to doing that. You can really focus in on some areas and focus in on the scriptures and understand them a little better uh, in their context. And, um, you know, there's some downsides to that preaching, too, because actually I could spend a whole year probably preaching on First and Second Peter. Just, you know, because you just see things and you, and you have rabbit trails and, and, you, and you want to, uh, you know, expound the scriptures uh, there and, and more fully. And so, you know, both ways are, are good ways. Um, so let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Now as we go through Peter's writings, we should take note that Peter's epistles are small from the aspect of total words. The writings have been divided as follows. There are two books, 1 and 2 Peter. 1 Peter has just five chapters. 2 Peter has even less, only three chapters. The chapters contain an average of less than 21 verses. You know, in the Old Testament, the books of the prophets are divided in divisions of major prophets and minor prophets based on the amount of words written by those prophets. Now, if we were to divide up the New Testament as major writers and minor writers in that same type of aspect, there would only be five major writers. There's really not that many writers in the New Testament. The five major writers would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. Peter would be found in the list of minor writers along with James and Jude. It's interesting to think about what uh, Peter was. Uh, you know, God used him just for a small amount of scripture, actually. Now, the dividing of the human instruments of God's word by volume of words does in no way minimize the importance of the writer or his message. And this is certainly true with Peter's writings. First of all, Peter's writings lay out some very clear and simplistic way the work of salvation through the triune God, the trinity of God as we call it, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, the perfect in unchanging in character, foreknew all things. He knew everything before it happened. Not violating any of our free will in any way, there is nothing that he did not know. Before Satan was created, he already had hell designed for he and his angels. Foreknowing his rebellion. He foreknew that mankind would be sinners 
by birth and by choice, being unrighteous and unable to stand before God. He knew before we were born that we would need a Savior, a Savior who could do what we could not do for ourselves. Before mankind had its physical existence, He already had His Son chosen to be slain to take away man's sin. God already knew before we were born who would actually accept His salvation and who would not. Peter does not explain how God is like this. He doesn't try to explain it away. It's just, this is who God is. He is high. We can't attain to it. Then he reveals Jesus the Son. In complete obedience to the Father's will, he became the perfect spotless Lamb of God to suffer and die by crucifixion. Then by his resurrection, he securely paved the way to heaven for all who will believe in him able to stand before God, not in anything that we have done, but having Jesus' righteousness imputed upon us or superimposed upon us, that when God looks upon us, He sees us as His very own Son. Now that's a, almost an unexplainable thing. But that's God. That's His way. That's how He chose. And what a wonderful thing it is for us. Then God the Holy Spirit, it's the working of the Spirit whereby the Word of God is made alive by the preaching of Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, the message of Christ is made personal to us. That Christ gave His life for me or for you, for every individual. And should we accept His invitation to trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, it is the Holy Spirit who enters our life to seal us, to comfort us, to join us together with other Christians through the church and teach us, what, uh, the, teach us about Christ and the obedience to His Word. Now, not only do we find very defined theology or teachings of God in Peter's brief writings, but we'll also find very repetitive themes. In just this short book, Peter re repeats himself quite a bit. Last week we ended the preaching of, uh, of Peter at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. It said, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. This is one of the repeated themes in the writings of Peter. To be found returning... Good for evil is powerful to stop evil, but it is even more powerful when we are returning evil, when, when we are returned evil for our good. And we are to be happy in such a position. These are hard things. That these trials perfect us or mature us into the image of Christ and in close fellowship with God. When I played sports in school, we had this thing called practice. Or should I call this the trials of afflictions? <laughs> it was difficult. It was repetitive. It was physically and mentally challenge, challenging. As difficult as it was, in a strange way, I enjoyed practice, at least at the start of it and at the very end of it, anyway. Not in the middle, not, not so much. There's a saying, practice makes perfect. 
I suppose this is what Peter is saying. There's only one way to know God and to live for Him better. It is through trials. And when we understand this, we can have an attitude of happiness and excitement, kind of thinking of the sport and knowing that through them, we will be drawn closer to God. Now, as we continue through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the rich doctrine and the repetitive themes of God's choosing through Peter's writings. Let's pray. Father, as we continue our way through First and Second Peter, Lord God, may we be drawn by the Holy Spirit, each of us individually, as the Spirit, for those who are saved, lives within them to reveal. There's no private interpretation of Scripture. Lord God, may I be what you want me to be as the pastor in preaching this message, Lord God. And may you use me how you will, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 13 and 14, I'll read again. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now, Peter is going to reveal something here that we should prepare for and expect to happen when this that when evil is at its greatest and darkest hour, the light of the gospel shines its brightest. When evil comes our way and we respond to a Christ-like returning good for evil, the effectiveness of the witness of Christ to others is magnified. So when we think about it that way, we should be excited about trials because we know something's good can happen, something greater. God comes in even greater when we do what we should do and be as we should be through trials. We should be expecting the opportunity to be a witness for God. And it's for this very reason that's why we should be happy. We probably witnessed the great inspirational power when someone who is afflicted, mentally challenged, or physically handicapped decides to be happy to live above the difficulty, be determined to live fully and wholly before God. When this person speaks, it goes right to the heart of the listener. It is because they are overcoming evil, the most difficult and harmful things in life with good. You think of uh, Job was like that. Now, there was a special speaker that one of the children received school credit if they went to hear this man speak. And it was held in the small old theater, and of all places, Bainbridge, Ohio. Little, anybody been to Bainbridge, seen the little theater there? I think there's a little ice cream place there, if I've got the place marked right. Patty and I went with our daughter, and I can't remember which was it. Do you have? Is Esther. Okay. And... Um, we went with her, and my expectations were very of low, coming from a college and a speaker, of who would come to this little theater in Bainbridge to speak. Though I'd never heard the speaker heretofore, he was a national, if not a world-renowned speaker. 
He has spoken to many famous people in the country, and he was an inspirational speaker. His story, and I'm just going to give it to you very briefly, as a child in Canada, he was playing with friends when someone threw up some kind of metal stake, I forget what it was, and he had looked up, and the stake went in his eye, and he was totally blind from that time forward as a young boy. His story was one of an attitude of good over such a devastating evil upon him. He was tenacious at overcoming through astonishing attitude. The story of his progress allowed him to live an amazing life. When he was a young man, he took up horseback riding, of all things. He, was, he wasn't only just determined to ride a horse, but to let the horse run. And he had situations which, being blind, he was hit with branches and knocked off the horse, and which he laughed about and got right back up on the horse. The fellow was amazing. He had a life of fulfillment that could not be associated to health or wealth. It was a happiness in the spite of horrible circumstance. The speaker that I was dreading to take an entire evening to hear, I now wished every one of my family was there to hear him. He's a gifted speaker. It's just amazing. He was an overcomer. I believe this is what Peter is saying. When you're dealt wrongly, and you decide to overcome that evil with good, it is possible that people who would never give you the time of day will set you on a pedestal, open their hearts, and hang on every word you have to say. There's three steps he gives us. Verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This is the step of preparation. What does it mean to sanctify? It means to make holy, purify, or consecrate, to venerate, hallow, be holy, sanctify. Get close to God and let God swell up in your heart in these situations. It simply means that out of your heart comes the issues of life. You are preparing your heart to magnify God in these situations. We're going to go through some difficult situations. People are going to watch. First step, build God up in your heart. And it says, And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. That is the step of anticipation. We have preparation of the heart. Anticipation. We should always be looking for opportunity to be a witness. Many times we ask God for an opportunity, then fail to look for that opportunity and miss it altogether. You ever do that through the day and you just get busy through the day and you forget? We should be anticipating, looking for those times. Peter is saying that there is a great potential for witness when we are rewarded evil for our good. Be ready. Are you ready to give an answer? Do you have God's word and your testimony at the tip of your tongue ready to be spilled out? From the heart, from the tip of the tongue, and then it says with meekness and fear. This is the step of attitude. Meekness means mildness or by implication humility. 
meekness, fear, to be put in fear, alarm or fright, be afraid, exceeding fear, terror. There are a couple good signs for us when performing or when we're speaking for God. A humility that the work is a work of humility. It's a position that we give truth as not being better than someone else. It's the truth, and it can be hard, but it's not anything being better than ourselves. All men have sinned, including us. But the truth has equality to all mankind. People must understand that we all have sinned, that the saved are sinners saved by grace, and that there is equal right for the unsaved to, just as we have, turn to Christ to be saved. Where does fear come in in this? Anytime God is using your mouth to speak, whenever you get up here, Tim, you were up here, you get an opportunity, there should always be a certain fear of carefulness in it. God's doing a work. Remember Moses, he took off his shoes because he's in the presence of God. God is, you say, well, there ought to be a certain fear about that. We must be confident to speak God's word, okay? Yet always with a fear that in the flesh we can mess this thing up. Remember what Peter said about the witness of godly women to an unsaved husband that we went over? While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. I suppose we could define speaking God's word without the restraint of fear. If we don't have that restraint of fear, it comes out as arrogance. I've heard many of an arrogant witness. Verse 16, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. You know, I'm amazed as I read through the Bible, as we study through things, the things of the world. You know, God is true. God never lies. God is great. But he doesn't have to prove it. It proves itself. All men have to do is dig in the dirt. We find the more they dig, the more we find out God's right. The more it goes on, God's right. The more they find out that evolution and those things are right. Here Peter says that you need to have a good conscience that what you are saying is right. If you say what is right according to the word of God, your mind is clear and your testimony is safe and your words will bother the conscience of the offender. That word of truth can do much work in the sinner long past the offense or the opportunity you have to speak back when they ask you of the hope that's in you. Verse 17 says, For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Now verse 17 again is a repeating theme from Peter that our suffering should only be rooted in well-doing. We're not to suffer as murderers or as liars or as things like that. As commonly done, Peter solidifies how we should behave by reminding us of the example in Christ. Let's keep what Peter is saying here in context as it is directly tied to the previous verses. He has simply indicated that Jesus suffered wrongfully that people could be saved. He is that example that we should follow. 
It says in verse 18, For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now Peter brings in how Christ's messages was preached through Noah. And a lot of these verses can get mixed up, but you've got to listen to what's being said. 2 Peter 2.5, it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Those are, that'll be in 2 Peter. We'll get to that at, at some point. But here he's saying that, uh, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The word of God was coming through Noah before the flood. Verse 19 of our text, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Who were the spirits in prison in Noah's day? <laughs> Everyone but eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their, and their three wives. The rest, all the rest besides those eight, they were imprisoned in wickedness. Genesis 6, 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. How did Jesus preach to those in prison? Through Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. <laughs> Talk about somebody who was under affliction and hated and despised, no doubt, was Noah. It says in verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. What baptism is this talking about? It's not talking about water baptism. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All four gospel writers make this statement. Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Mark 1.8, indeed I have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Luke, and these are all speaking about John. John obviously was the one speaking here, John answered and said unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. When you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit 
indwells you, comes in and lives within you. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, just like Noah and his family were saved from the judgment of God upon the world, so shall we be saved from the judgment by believing by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by what method was Jesus resurrected? Let's go back and look at verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God <laughs> resurrected Christ. He was resurrected by the Spirit of God, so it shall be with us. It is by the Spirit of God that we will be resurrected. The like figure of baptism that saves us is the baptism of of the Spirit of God. And you can look in the scriptures, I don't have them here, but there was times when people said, I'm a, I have the baptism of John, that water baptism. And they said, you haven't been baptized by the Holy Ghost. And they had to preach to him Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then they, then they received the Holy Spirit. Peter is rich with doctrine. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. We get time to say we have, you have separation, but you see the continuation, okay? So don't get lost in like, oh, this is like a new subject. It's continuing. It says, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. He says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Again, a repetitive theme of the training of your mind. This time he says, first of all, he said, gird your loins, the loins of your mind. Now he says to arm ourselves in our minds. The Greek word is hoplidso. means to equip, as with weapons, to arm yourself. To arm ourselves with what? We are to no longer live according to the will of flesh after the pleasures of this world, but rather to the will of God, like Jesus did. He's the example. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. Now, if you're one of those who got saved later in life, I'm sure you had your friends and you lived in the world and you talked like the world and you acted like the world. And some of you has been in a big nasty mess and done wrong things. But when you get saved, there are places, there are activities, and there are people that you no longer belong with. They see you as strange all of a sudden. <laughs> Weird. That's not a bad thing. Yes, you should be. And though you don't mean to be offensive, your life condemns your old lifestyle and their current lifestyle. Because of some genuine human care sometimes and friendship between the newly saved and the unsaved friends, the saved sometimes will attempt a middle ground, which is wrong to do. And you'll find out very quickly it does not work. 
I'll go to the party, but I'll not drink, and I'll leave early. You'll go there, you'll be so convicted. You don't belong there. That is a wrong thing to do. You no longer belong to that group. You are to arm your mind with that. On the flip side, your old friends, these are human relationships, may just say that, nah, you're a little strange. You know, I ain't got religion. You know, that happens to people sometimes. These acts a little goofy. But that will turn into resentment and rejection. Because true salvation is true separation. We're not to be there. We're to arm our minds that we're not to be in that, that world with those people with that kind of talk. If you're involved in that, I'll tell you what, you're a miserable Christian. You're not to be there. Verse 5, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Who is the quick and the dead? I look at Ephesians 2.1. It says, and you hath he quickened. Talking about who's saved. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. God's going to judge the saved and the unsaved. The quick are the saved, the dead are the unsaved. Again, a repetitive thought. There's a judgment coming. This has been, Peter's repeating himself again. A judgment of eternal hell fire to the unsaved that should give cause for us to be a witness. And a judgment for the believer, not for hell, but for how he lived his life as a Christian. Verse 6 says, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but living according to God in the Spirit. It is God's will. He came to preach that people might be saved. The judgment might be temporal by, the, by men in the flesh. In the context of Peter's writings, it is the suffering of the Christian by unjust judgment of mankind. But our life is lived above the circumstances of this life by the indwelling Spirit of God. I'll read that verse again. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. The operative word here is might. If it is up to the saved, if it was up to us, if God said, uh, take a little hammer and knock somebody on the head and they'll be saved, you know what we'd be doing? Knocking people on the head. <laughs> if it's up to God that people were to be saved, all people would be saved. We would have, he would have all men to be saved, but the word might refers to every man's choice to be saved. In verse 5, it asks, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? The answer is you. We're all going to stand before God. Saved and unsaved. Another theme of Peter to remember those things. There's a judgment coming. Keep that in your mind. Peter was told by Jesus before his final ascension three times to feed his lambs and feed his sheep. 
I'm sure Peter never forgot that. Peter was given a pastor's heart. In his epistles, he is speaking to the saved, God's lambs and his sheep. Let me ask you, first of all, are you the sheep in God's pasture? Are you the saved? Or are you not saved? You can be saved today by believing on Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you are saved, Peter is helping you to understand how to live the Christian life. Now I'm going to stop here at these verses. Tonight, Lord willing, we're going to go through the next verses that happens to be in our book that we've been using on Sunday night. And I believe you'll be blessed by, by hearing those scriptures uh, taught through this book. The Christian life is a life of suffering from the unjust judgment of man, the judgment of this world against a holy life lived for the glory of God, the suffering having done right and good is a good thing. We should be happy for we know it produces great opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of unsaved men that we should sanctify God in our hearts, that we should expect an opportunity to be a witness, that we should be prepared, knowing God's word, having a clear conscience that we have spoken God's word, that we should be humble, fearful, having a certain carefulness in our speech, avoiding any arrogance, that Christ is our example, that Christ gave his life that we might be saved so that we should give our lives to the will of God and not to the will of the flesh. We are to be separated from the world. Our conversation found in Christ and like Christ preached and like Noah, we should preach and live to draw men to Christ. That's a plug for you on Wednesday. Knowing that there is an awful impending judgment of hell waiting upon the lost that we were once under, we were there that we should feel a personal responsibility to give opportunity for the lost to be saved, to arm our mind, not to live after the flesh, but to the will of God. And though having obtained eternal salvation, witnessed by the indwelling Spirit, we also understand that we will answer personally to God for how we lived our lives as a child of God. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we see this message that Peter is preaching to some very persecuted people east who more than likely fled from the persecution of where those seven churches are talked about in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 who were strangers it says scattered He's speaking to these people. This is, what you, this is how you need to be. He talks about how you think, how you talk, how your relationships are, many things. Peter is teaching the sheep, the lambs. These are hard things. As God put a finger on something that pertains to you and your life, your life live for God or 
is there a certain nervousness about not being a Christian? That can be solved today. Fall before Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all that you know. Place it upon Christ. Even now, in your heart. What a wonderful Savior. He's our example. That's, that's the thing that's, folks, it's hard to get by. We may say it's hard and we may do something else, but we look at Christ and what He did. He's our example. Peter constantly refers to the example of Christ. Amen. Thank you for your attention this morning. I pray that uh, God has worked in your heart and something in there. Uh, again, Peter's full of doctrinal things and, um, and also is just telling us how, how to live. And he repeats a lot of things. So just be thinking of those things as we go through those scriptures. He's repeating, remember where he came from, all what he went through. You'll see parts of his past in his present preaching. And the things that he went through. And he's a changed man. Peter is not the Peter he was uh, before. He became something new. And yeah, God worked that through his life. And he's telling us how to do that ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for all who's come out today. Lord, pray you bless this afternoon as we uh, continue in family camp. And may you continue to work in our hearts and lives as a church, as a family, as we work with one another, as we love one another, as we endeavor to get the gospel out together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You are